All right, we are back. Uh, let's do some science in this, our final segment today. And uh, what better way to start than with some follow-up on our uh, discussion of the melamine that's turned up in pet food. And for this, we'd like to thank one of our regular listeners, apparently, Mike, who works here at UC Davis's California Animal Health and Food Safety Laboratory System. We mentioned last week we would hope that someone would email us uh, that knew about what was going on with this situation. And thankfully, uh, Mike, an analytical chemist, uh, has done so. So I think I will just read uh, from this email. This whole thing started with reports from veterinarians that cats and dogs were getting ill and dying of renal failure shortly after eating particular pet foods. A number of labs around the country started receiving suspect food samples and testing them for the typical things known to cause renal failure in animals. Stuff like ethylene glycol, oxalates, and a few other chemicals. Ethylene glycol, of course, is radiator fluid. The foods were negative for these. The FDA was also working on these samples and had found out that problems had started shortly after the pet food manufacturers had begun using a new source of wheat gluten in the pet food. Gluten, of course, is uh, that substance in wheat that makes it doughy and sticky. I understand it was added to various gravies in in pet foods. Uh, Mike goes on that one of the food labs in New York, which had received samples from Cornell's veterinary diagnostic lab, announced they'd found the compound aminopterin in a couple of food samples. But no other lab had been able to confirm its presence in any other suspect food sample. What other labs did find was high levels of the compound melamine. Melamine is mostly used in the production of plastic for dinnerware. At first, no one paid a whole lot of attention to this, as melamine is not thought to be particularly toxic. In fact, an article by Deb Collars in the Sacramento Bee quoted Dr. Michael Payne, a UC Davis toxicologist, as noting that in the grand scheme of chemicals, Melamine is 15 to 35 times less toxic than caffeine on a pound-for-pound basis. Mike Fletter goes on, The FDA was able to determine that the suspect wheat gluten contained extremely high levels of melamine, several percentage in some samples. Cat food contained levels as high as several tenths of a percent. Soon became apparent that virtually every suspect pet food sample contained melamine, while other pet foods did not. Our lab also started testing urine from cats and dogs that had fallen ill with renal problems and found significant levels of melamine. When, uh, when other brands of cat and dog food uh, made the pets sick that did not contain uh, the, um, the wheat gluten, the FDA was able to determine that these pet foods contained rice protein that had been imported from China, which also contained high levels of melamine, as well as the related compound cyanuric acid. Those pet foods were subsequently recalled, but of course it didn't end there. It's apparently a common practice for pet food companies to sweep up scraps from the manufacturing process and sell it off for pig food. That's exactly what happened to some of the food containing the contaminated rice protein. He goes on to note that uh, there's a farm in the Central Valley that uh, apparently sold off whole pigs. And uh, samples from that farm were, were taken and found to be positive for melamine, thus confirming the entry of the contaminated protein into the human food supply. Mike notes, at that point, things here at the lab became very, very busy. And it turns out that uh, this food had been sold to hog farms in other states. The feds made the decision to depopulate the hogs, so that ended the problem. Until it became known that some chicken farms had also received contaminated feed and that people had already eaten those chickens. Since the levels of melamine in chicken meat would be likely very low, it's just most people don't eat huge amounts of chicken, it's unlikely melamine would have caused any human illness. But the ramifications of an industrial compound like melamine getting into the human food supply via contamination in imported ingredients are, of course, huge. 
As we mentioned in last week's program, uh, apparently the culprit behind this is the fact that the Chinese get a higher price for their wheat gluten depending on its protein content. And if you add melamine to the feed, it boosts the nitrogen level, which artificially indicates that it has more protein than it really does and makes it more valuable. David Barboza and Alexei Barrio Nuevo, writing in the New York Times, noted that in Zhangqi, a fast-growing industrial city southeast of Beijing, two animal feed producers explained in great detail how they purchase low-grade wheat, corn, soybean, and other proteins, and then mix in small portions of nitrogen-rich melamine scrap, whose chemical properties help the feed register at an inflated protein level. Melamine is the new scam of choice, they say, because urea, another nitrogen-rich chemical, is illegal for use in pig and poultry feed and can be easily detected in China as well as the United States. Said the manager of an animal feed factory, people use melamine scrap to boost nitrogen levels for the tests. If you add it in small quantities, it won't hurt the animals. Well, apparently they were wrong about that. Returning to Mike's, uh, Mike's letter, he noted what, uh, what killed these animals. There's not a lot of melamine data out there, so no one's really sure that it isn't the culprit, but it doesn't seem likely. One possibility is that some melamine-related compounds, like cyanuric acid, that have also been found in the gluten and rice protein, are the real toxins, or that they are combining with the melamine to form a more toxic compound. There are a lot of people working on this issue, and it will be interesting to see what they come up with. Well, it certainly will, and we will continue to follow this story as it unfolds. And we hope, uh, Mike, that you will again uh, write us and keep us informed of what the California Animal Health and Food Safety Laboratory System uh, is coming up with. It's really very gratifying for us to note here at Radio Parallax is that as we reach more and more people that, uh, you know, we can count on your expertise to educate us and thus every other listener about uh, what you know about. I've heard Dr. Bill Wattenberg uh, on KGO Radio note many times that, well, I don't know the answer to that, but you know what? Someone out there listening does, and we want them to call in so we can learn from you. All right, let's do some science. According to The Economist magazine, April 14th issue, gut bacteria may help to explain why a Spartan diet increases lifespan. Noted the magazine, it's now generally accepted that eating less makes animals live longer. That's been demonstrated in creatures ranging from worms to mammals. Exactly why it should be so remains, however, hotly debated. So Jeremy Nicholson of Imperial College London and his colleagues set out to shed some light on the matter, and their results were published in the Journal of Proteome Research. You know, and, and I'm glad The Economist reprinted this because, you know, I let my subscription to the Journal of Proteome Research lapse. But at any rate, the question posed is, does eating less result in a lower metabolic rate? And the preliminary answer from this research indicates that perhaps in dogs anyway, uh, yes, apparently it does. Dogs were fed uh, diets of different uh, caloric content, and their urine was checked for certain uh, compounds to see what they might learn. One thing they looked at was creatine, which I believe is favored by a lot of weightlifters to supposedly give themselves added uh, energy. Creatine does indeed help supply energy uh, to muscles. Uh, checking, checking in these dogs in the various diets, they found out that the dogs that were well-fed had more creatine in their urine than their calorie-deprived counterparts. Thus, evidently, the dieting dogs' muscles were less active, and their overall metabolism had, in other words, been depressed. Next, they looked at compounds called aliphatic amines, which uh, incidentally give urine its pungent aroma. 
these are made when bacteria munch on a chemical called choline, a part of an animal's food. Uh, choline is essential for metabolizing fat, but dogs cannot synthesize it themselves. These aliphatic amines were used as an indicator of how much choline these dogs were absorbing from their gut. It turns out, in fact, that choline is made available for absorption from the intestine by the activities of gut bacteria, something that dogs have and which we certainly have. The dogs in the restricted diet had lower levels of these amines in their urine, indicating that they were, uh, you know, absorbing less choline. Since you have to, uh, you know, you need the choline to absorb the fats, it indicates they were absorbing less fat as well. Again, acting as a check on the metabolic rate. So what's the punchline to all this? Well, the apparent drop in choline levels was much greater than could be accounted for by the relative lack of food. So Dr. Nicholson suspects that the restricted diet was also causing the composition of the dog's gut flora, flora meaning the different uh, types of bacteria present, to change in a way that did not favor choline-munching bugs. This offers an intriguing echo to a study we mentioned on this show a few months ago by Jeffrey Gordon at Washington University in St. Louis, who showed that putting obese people on a diet changes the mix of their gut bacteria. In, in that human study, the consequences uh, that they found were a change in the metabolism of, of carbohydrates rather than fats, and the human study didn't imply any direct link with longevity, like Dr. Nicholson's work uh, does here with, with dogs, but the parallel is intriguing and does offer us another incentive to cut down on our calories if we want to live long. Anyway, that one took a while to get through, but I think it's worth it because, uh, you know, the one thing that we know, guaranteed, can extend lifespan no matter which species you're talking about is caloric restriction. Think about it. And uh, New Scientist magazine... April 7th issue had an article we wanted to tell you about, uh, talking about a new dangerous pandemic. Only in this case, they're not talking about human disease, they're talking about a disease of wheat. Article by Deborah McKenzie starts out quoting the father of the Green Revolution, Nobel laureate Norman Borlaug, who said, This thing has immense potential for social and human destruction. Note of the magazine, an infection is coming and almost no one has heard about it. This infection isn't going to give you flu or TB. In fact, it isn't interested in you at all. It's after the wheat plants that feed more people than any other single food source on the planet. The disease is UG99, a virulent strain of black stem rust fungus discovered in Uganda in 1999. Now, since the Green Revolution in the 60s, farmers everywhere have grown wheat varieties that resist stem rust. But apparently UG99 has evolved to take advantage of those varieties and almost no wheat crops anywhere are resistant to it. Magazine notes, black stem rust itself is nothing new. It's been a major blight on wheat production since the rise of agriculture. And the Romans even prayed to a stem rust god, Robagus. It can reduce a field of ripening grain to a dead, tangled mass, and vast outbreaks regularly used to rip through wheat regions. The last to hit the North American breadbasket in 1954 wiped out 40% of the crop. Naturally, of course, in the Cold War, both the U.S. and the Soviet Union stockpiled stem rust spores as a biologic weapon. Apparently, this uh, UG-99 strain has uh, gotten out of Africa. Spores blew across uh, the Red Sea into Yemen and north into Sudan, and scientists who have tracked uh, similar airborne spores in this part of the world say it will now blow into Egypt, Turkey, and the Middle East, and then on to India. 
We've talked in the past about uh, biodiversity and the need to have different uh, different genetic strains out there. And this is an example, uh, again, of how important that can be. Luckily for the world, Norman Borlaug is still alive and still on the case at age 93. He's looking to the long term, noting that eventually scientists will have to create wheat with a wide spectrum of resistances. The genes may be hiding in other grasses and, and grains. For now, says Borlaug, we have to rely on fungicides, wheat breeding, and luck. We're moving as fast as we can, but we started three years too late. We'd better have some good luck. Governments think this is small and local, but these things can build up. And I'm quite positive that someone here within our listening sphere uh, knows something about this. And please, please, whoever you are, feel free to send us what you know at info at radioparallax.com. And as summer approaches and we're out at night more, out in in our warm uh, California weather, you might want to try this great parlor trick. Visit www.heavens-above.com and find out when there's going to be the next iridium flare coming to our area. Now, uh, back in the 1980s, there was a plan to bring satellite uh, radio phones to the whole world by putting 77 satellites in a polar orbit around the Earth, meaning they go over the North and South Poles and basically then cover all parts of the Earth. These various satellites were going to allow us to always have something above us for which to bounce signals off of. Well, the whole Iridium thing went through cutbacks and not enough people wanted to buy phones that were expensive you could use in Africa and... And the whole thing kind of, uh, you know, virtually fell apart. The 66 satellites put up at a cost of $6 billion were sold to a private investors group for $25 million. The U.S. Department of Defense now became uh, their main uh, customer. What's fascinating about these satellites are that they have these great uh, antenna panels of covered aluminum that basically are giant mirrors in the sky. And if you pick the right time, they will flare up, lasting up to 20 seconds with a magnitude of... Negative nine, that's somewhere between the brightness of Venus, which is pretty impressive in your western sky, and that of the full moon. I saw one of these by accident uh, last summer, and they are impressive. Anyway, they're kind of cool to see, and they, they do come on a regular basis, so look it up on the web. See if you can go out and see the next one to make an appearance. That would, again, be at www.heavens-above.com. All right, let us, uh, let us go out with some uh, notable obituaries. Last week, Wally Schirra passed away, one of the original Mercury 7 astronauts. Wally Schirra was, in fact, the only of uh, NASA's astronauts to fly on all of the original three uh, programs that were headed toward the moon, Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. Schirra had been a Navy combat pilot in the Korean War and later a test pilot. He was the third American to orbit the Earth when he lifted off of Cape Canaveral uh, on his Mercury spacecraft on, in October of 1962. He later took part in the first rendezvous between two spacecraft, that in December 1965, flying on Gemini 6, which came within inches of the Gemini 7 spacecraft carrying uh, Frank Borman and James Lovell. On his final mission, Wally Schirra commanded Apollo 7, the first manned mission in the Apollo program. Shira left NASA in July of 1969 to become president of a financial company. He also worked occasionally on CBS news broadcasts, sometimes paired with Walter Cronkite. Noted for his frankness and sense of humor, uh, Shira admitted that uh, space missions were hardly all glamour. He told the Associated Press in 1981, Mostly it's lousy out there. It's a hostile environment. It's trying to kill you. 
The outside temperature goes from minus 450 to plus 300 degrees. You sit in a flying thermos bottle. And apparently while he was orbiting the Earth, uh, a fellow fellow astronaut, uh, Deke Slayton, asked him, Are you a turtle? Which I guess according to uh, military tradition, you're required to answer, You bet your sweet ass I am, or else you have to buy the round of drinks. Aware that the entire world was listening to the broadcast, when Slayton asked him, Are you a turtle? He switched off the, the intercom, recorded his reply, and then presented it to Slayton back on Earth so he didn't have to buy the round of drinks. Apparently, President Kennedy heard about the incident uh, and, uh, and asked Shara during a White House reception the same question, are you a turtle, at which point Shara felt free to answer him as he was supposed to. And we're sad to note the passing of Tommy Newsom, the former backup band leader on The Tonight Show, whose Mr. Excitement nickname was a running joke for Johnny Carson. Tommy Newsom, a saxophone player, joined The Tonight Show in 1962 and rose from band member to assistant music director. When uh, Doc Severinsen was out playing engagements, which he frequently was, uh, Tommy Newsom uh, stood in to be the uh, substitute band director. This inevitably earned him a place in Carson's monologue where they would play off his reputation for being a rather mild-mannered individual. It's really sad to contemplate that Johnny Carson's Tonight Show has been gone now 15 years because uh, I can remember so well uh, Tommy Newsom standing there with his low-key personality in his, uh, in his rather drab suits in, in contrast to Doc Severinsen's, uh, you know, flashy stylings. Because you have to be certain that anyone working in, like, the Tonight Show band couldn't have been all that drab. Apparently not long after the Johnny Carson era ended, back in 1992, Tommy Newsom remarked that his image as an ordinary guy was, quote, fairly accurate compared to Rambo. And, of course, this allows us to go out of today's show using the excellent theme song from The Tonight Show. Written, by the way, by Mr. Paul Anka. Our thanks to guest Chris Hedges of the New York Times, as well as Steve Freeman from the University of Pennsylvania's Center for Organizational Dynamics. We uh, hope to have them both on the show at some future date. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time.